The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Sloth, the noonday demon, Acedia. It's one of the vices, the seven deadly sins, and it means laziness. Right? Well, the difficulty of acedia to pin down and the ways it manifests in daily life can make it a tricky sin to recognize and fight. But don't be deceived, it is a dangerous trickster. Have you ever been unable to stay still at your desk? Or how about, have you ever hankered every few years for a new house, a new car? Or maybe for the more contemplative among us, have you ever gotten trapped in nostalgia for the past in order to avoid a difficult present? It might be acedia. Dr. Stefana Dan Lang joins us to consider what St. Evagrius Ponticus or St. Evagrius the Solitary has to tell us about the dangers of acedia, how to recognize it, and how to fight the good fight against it, whether from a student laptop, a family home, or a home office. Stefana is Assistant Professor of Divinity and Theological Librarian at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. She teaches in the area of spiritual formation, and her primary area of research is patristics. She is one of the editors of a women's study Bible, as well as the author of Retrieving History, Memory and Identity Formation in the Early Church. And she speaks here with Father Jeff Hansen, who is the curate for Christian education at Church of the Advent in Boston. Stefana emailed me with a suggested reading list, too, for your further study, if you're interested, which you can find in the show notes. But warning, after listening to this conversation, you may never sit down to study again in the same way. And it might be a good thing. So for starters, uh, how do you go about pronouncing A-C-E-D-I-A? Well, I say acedia, and the Greek word is akedia. Um, In English literature, like there's a a work by Aldous Huxley called Axidi. So this word appears, uh, you know, sort of in in the literary field as A-C-C-I-D-I-E. And so Mm. some people might kind of come to it that way. Yeah, well, that was the first thing that I thought to maybe seek out to clarify, just because, um, you know, I feel like if you're if you're a reader and not a talker, it's one of these things that you could easily uh, stumble over. Right. And of course, it sounds like a property in Greek. It sounds a little bit too much like the uh, the National Park in Maine. So <laughs> it seems like a funny thing to want to wanna, to want to call it. But I thought I would at least be consistent with what you you know, how you've chosen to pronounce it. And uh, and, and we'll we'll stick with we'll stick with that. I notice also, of course, it's often untranslated, right? And it seems like nowadays the tendency is to just leave it as is uh, when when writing about it. So maybe you can tell us why that is uh, as part of your explanation of sort of like what is acedia? Well, probably just people don't want to say akedia, which is the Greek, uh, probably something like the Greek uh, pronunciation. But literally, akedia, acedia, comes from uh, a Greek word that means lack of caring not caring 
But in the context of spirituality, uh, it means so much more than not caring. In the context of the fourth century and, um, you know, Evagrius of Pontus, who we'll talk about a little bit today, um, it means a, a whole lot more. It's much more comprehensive and, and broad than just, uh, just not caring. So sometimes this word, uh, acedia, is associated with the phrase, the noonday demon. And um, uh, Vagris calls it the noonday demon. But this is you know, a, a phrase that I'll probably kind of throw around uh, here and there, and it appears in the literature. But um, the noonday demon is taken from Psalm 91.6. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, the church fathers, the desert fathers, they come out of this, you know, context that's so long, long ago and far, far away. And people are like, where do they come up with this weird, what is the new day demon, you know, stalking us? Mm-hmm. And uh, more times than not, the church fathers have gotten this from somewhere in the scripture where uh, we have sort of overlooked it, you know. So, um Right. Uh, this is a little bit of a connection too with the pandemic. Psalm ninety-one six is uh, a, a text that I've heard quoted a lot during the pandemic because there's a focus on protection from the pestilence. But uh, that verse there, verse six, also says that you'll be protected by the destruction that wastes at noonday. Mm. And the um, uh, the Vulgate translation of that and the Septuagint translation of that it, uh, comes across something like the noonday demon, the demon at noon. Okay. Okay. So Evagrius, when he talks about acedia, he equates it with this phenomenon of the noonday demon. Okay. So what's the association, do you suppose? Is 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 it basically out of the lived experience of monasticism that this particular form of affliction comes upon one sort of, uh, sort of in the middle of the day? Yes, it is exactly. And, um, I have, um, um, I have a little passage to uh, to read about that. This is this is Evagrius's uh, description of acedia, and um, it's taken from a work he wrote called the Practicus, um, and it goes like this: the demon of acedia, also called the noonday demon, is the one that causes the the one of the eight thoughts, and we'll talk about the vices probably a, a little bit uh, in, in a little bit. The one that causes the most serious trouble of all. This demon, he presses his attack upon the monk from about the fourth hour, so like nine, ten o'clock in the morning, and besieges the soul until the eighth hour, so mm-hmm. about like three in the afternoon. Okay, if you think about when you're trying to study, what happens about three in the afternoon? Right. If you're trying to, you know, if you have students, you're or you are a student in class, what happens about three in the afternoon? First of all, he makes it seem that the sun barely moves, if at all, and that the day is 50 hours long. Then he constrains the monk to look constantly out the windows, to walk outside his cell, to gaze carefully at the sun to determine how far it stands from the ninth hour. Like how close are we to four o'clock when it's probably their mealtime? Like maybe their one meal (laughs) a day. Hmm. To look now this way and now that to see if perhaps uh, one of the brothers will appear from his cell. And then too, he, the demon, instills in the heart of the monk a hatred for the place, a hatred for his very life itself, a hatred for manual labor. He leads him to reflect that charity has departed from among the brethren. There is no one to give encouragement. Should there be someone at this period who happens to offend him in some way or another, this too the demon uses to contribute further to his hatred. 
This demon drives him along to desire other places where he can more easily procure life's necessities, more readily find work and make a real success of himself. He goes on to suggest, this is the monk with some ambition, obviously. (laughs) He goes on to suggest that after all, it is not the place that is the basis of pleasing the Lord. God is to be adored everywhere. So it's like an excuse for moving around. Mm. Um, He joins to these reflections, the memory of his dear ones, of his former way of life. He depicts life stretching out for a long period of time and brings before the mind's eye the toil of the ascetic struggle. And as the saying has it, leaves no leaf unturned to induce the monk to forsake his cell and drop out of the fight. And this is the real kicker, Mm. to drop out of the fight. And if you can struggle against this demon and kind of, you know, beat him on on that particular assault, because an assault will come again. But Mm. if you can beat him this time, he says, um, a state of deep peace and inexpressible joy arise out of this struggle. Fascinating. So it's it's very interesting um, if you think about uh, kind of how acedia manifests it. There's a um, what I would call a uh, durational aspect um, and a locational aspect, right? Okay. Um, so. Um, so maybe we can, uh, maybe we can kind of get, you know, get into that, um, after I maybe, uh, talk a little bit about Evagrius himself sure, and how yeah. he kind of came to this too. Right. I was going to ask, so just to be sure, like the, the time frame in our minds, right. This is one of the earliest articulations that we get. Right. And, uh, so we're talking right. late fourth century or whereabouts. Yes. And Evagrius actually, Evagrius was from Pontus. So that's in modern day Turkey. Mm. And uh, he lived actually exactly the second half of the fourth century. So uh, his dates are about 349 to 399. Okay. And, um, you know, he was a, he was a pastor's son, intellectually gifted, very charismatic, a people person, you know, not a, a career desert dweller. Okay. Um, and uh, he lived at a time, the late fourth century, a time of theological ferment for the church. He was mentored by some of the big luminaries in the church at the time. He was around mm. at the Council of Constantinople. Um, okay. and, you know, he, he was there uh, being mentored by the Cappadocians. So mm. it was an exciting time. Uh, and uh, he, he lived right in the midst of it. So he would have had an opportunity then to travel in Egypt at the time when monasticism is really sort of first taking shape, basically. Right. That's right. And, and being alone in the desert is probably the last thing he wanted, I would guess. I mean, mm-hmm. at the time of the Council of Constantinople, uh, he would have been about 32, you know, and he was, he, okay. he just wanted to be in the midst uh, of, of society and, and of just everything that was going on in the church. Um, but something happened to Evagrius while his church career was going great and he was being mentored by big names and promoted by them and rising in the church, et cetera. And the, the, what happened is that he had uh, a crisis. <laughs> he was facing the specter mm-hmm. of, of moral failure because he had become enamored of an aristocratic married woman and she was attracted to him as well. And so he was, he, he was torn, you know, he, he didn't want mm-hmm. to um, fall into uh, an affair and he couldn't bring himself to leave Constantinople. And uh, one night he had a very convicting dream in which he promised mm. that he would he would leave 
And the next morning, even though he swore an oath, you know, in his dream, he decided he'd go ahead and keep it. And he left Constantinople and he ended up um, eventually in the desert of, um, of, of Nitria in Egypt. Wow. And uh, he, he took up the um, monastic life. Incredible. So that was so that was all in flight of from temptation. Wow. Yeah. And and I think that one of the big impacts that uh, that that had um, was that he was not the kind of spiritual advisor that would say, tisk, tisk, tisk. You know, he mm. knew he, he, he knew he had experienced uh, what temptation, what a powerful temptation felt like and what powerlessness feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just like an inability to, to fight it. And I think what that did was it made him a very, um, not just an incisive spiritual director, but a very compassionate one, you know, right. one who's patient with you and, and, and is helpful to, you know, help you understand what's happening and why and what to do about it. So he would have lived that form of life long enough to know even personally then, you know, what Asidia felt like, as well as other forms of temptation and trial to confront people who are on the path to spiritual yes. perfection. Okay. Yeah. So I think that he's, I, I think that he is describing it out of his desert context because in the city, see, and I think this is one of the big points that I have gleaned from Evagrius. So in the mm-hmm. city where there, there are lots of people and um, uh, distractions um, uh, a lot of exciting, uh, exciting things that happen. Um, you don't realize it, but there is a spiritual warfare that's going on inside of you, but you're, you're not quiet enough in that context that you can realize what's happening and that it's happening. And sometimes, um, you don't realize the negative, uh, stuff that's going on inside of you until a temptation comes and then you fall. You know, but in the desert, um, as Evagrius said, um, the devil can't uh, fight against you through distractions because there aren't any distractions. And so, in some sense, uh, the the devil is fighting against the ascetics in the desert. He says nakedly. So you mm. just see the you feel the brunt of it. You see the whole ugliness of it because there's nothing else to distract. Right. And so in that setting, like you mentioned, sort of both aspects that are sort of to do with duration and with location, right? So in a sense, there's a spatial and a temporal dimension to this, right? And there's a time, there seems to be a time of day at which the mind is maybe wearied or or uh, open to distraction or even eager or hankering for distraction or uh, exhausted by other forms of effort or awaiting some kind of refreshment. And then it seems like that also sort of manifests itself in a, in a dissatisfaction with where one is, right? Or a sort That's of... Right. Uh, or, uh, or a, uh, an opportunity to find fault with um, with the place, right? And the opportunities that the place seems to present. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you're you're just just looking for a distraction, and then you're dissatisfied with with what you're doing, maybe like with your um, with your vocation, um, and then kind of the worldly ambitions that maybe you had in the past sort of come back to you. The comforts of home. Mm. Um, um, just, just the fact that just like the day is stretching out, sort of, it feels like in the afternoon with no end in sight, with just the hot sun beating on you. It's like, you can just see your whole life stretching out ahead of you, <laughs> just in this monastic practice and asceticism with no end in sight. And it's, and, and maybe like with no real result in sight, you know, you're, you're dissatisfied. Um, and I think some of this that we probably feel as well, um, is 
is because we, just like the immature monk, we don't take the long view of our life, of our ministry, of our vocation, of our relationships. We don't take the mm-hmm. long view of our spiritual life. And so we become discouraged, we become maybe impatient with ourselves, self-critical. Um, we just want to throw in the towel and um, don't realize that a spiritual giant is not born in a day. People aren't getting out much these days, but they are listening to podcasts. So if you're in publishing, nonprofit ministry, church technology, vestments, or anything in between, we would love to advertise for you right here on our weekly podcast. We have hundreds of listeners a week. Our audience is cross-generational and it is growing. Just email Andrew Russell at arussell at livingchurch.org. That's A-R-U-S-S-E-L-L at livingchurch.org and he'll get you started. Yes, I think that's right. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's maybe the explanation for what I've noticed before, which is um, a most paradoxical set of symptoms, if you want to call them that, that, that attach to acedia and the descriptions that you get, some of which strike me as very contemporary. I mean, you know, the things that Evagrius was saying, as well as if you look at John Cassian's institutes, his description, I think also, you know, strikes one as very contemporary in terms of the, on the one hand, there's a kind of lassitude, right? On the one hand, this manifests as a kind of, um, weariness or exhaustion or or sort of you know unwillingness to 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 persist in a course but on the other hand it also seems like it can manifest as a kind of restlessness or a kind of hyperactivity or a kind of activism that's right you know that that seems dissipated really or not focused on the task but is almost distracted with things that that don't need doing as 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 opposed to the the one thing needful which is what's been forsaken and so i wonder whether um, I'm reading that correctly to sort of suggest that that perhaps you've put your finger on the common explanation for what seem to be completely opposed sets of symptomology, you might say. That's ex- exactly what Evagrius says. And Cassian was a disciple of Evagrius. And so, yes, he's taking exactly how Evagrius um, uh, taught it to him. Um, it does seem paradoxical, doesn't it? Um, uh, because Because you don't have the patience or the perseverance to do the the thing that you need to do. You're just looking for distractions. And then you make up excuses for why you need to do those things. And the thing is that some of these distractions um, normally would be good and admirable things. Like, for example, Evagrius says, Mm. uh, you know, somebody who's supposed to be doing one thing says, you know, I really should go and visit this other brother and just make sure that he's okay. <laughs> and and he says, you you don't need to do it. That's an excuse. That's just that's for you. You know, it's it's like mm. a, a procrastination um, because mm. you don't want to do the thing that's hard um, and that requires the 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 uh, perseverance. So it's like when we choke our calendar with all kinds of activities, but we don't mm-hmm. do. Um, you know, that uh, something that maybe is more important than all of those put together. And so we have the illusion that we're really accomplishing a lot when actually mm-hmm. there's, <laughs> there's a, a huge gaping hole in, in our accomplishment. Right. And I'm supposing this is why nowadays people don't usually stick with the traditional translation of this term, which was sloth. Yes. Right. Because sloth sort of sounds too much you know, to our ears like, well, sort of just laziness or something, but of course, it doesn't. It doesn't appear 
that way, right? It can appear as, in fact, just as the opposite, as sort of like an, an incredible sort of over-scheduling, right? Or an over-busyness, which yeah. does not really, um, is not really come to mind when we hear the word sloth, no, which is why no. I suspect we don't use it so much anymore. So, oh, I know one thing that I wanted to say about acedia and the way Vagris talks about it. He says that acedia is very dangerous because it doesn't just impact bits and pieces of you and of your soul, but it actually chokes the whole soul. Hmm. It chokes the whole soul. And as the soul is being choked and doesn't exactly realize it, it's almost like it's floundering around and and its activities kind of become almost hysterical. Mm. You know, that we're almost in his, in hysterics doing the kinds of things like you said this this sort of frenzied activity that also is a a manifestation um of acedia. So I think uh, when I look at that at that manifestation as sort of that overbusyness or that kind of hyperactivity for the sake of it as well as I would say the dissatisfaction with where one is, right? Or with one's present situation or sort of ex- the sort of looking for excuses for why somehow I can't succeed or flourish where I am or with these people, that, that there somehow must be, you know, Cassian talks about how the monk under the influence of Asidia thinks, well, there's got to be a better monastery somewhere, right? There's got to be a better community over there. And surely their holiness is possible, but it's not possible here, right? Exactly. And I, I feel like these are the most sort of like uh, the most resonant aspects, I guess, for us today, because I'm thinking about sort of our own susceptibility to distraction, to, uh, you know, the diversions of social media, of, of entertainment. Uh, these things seem to be constantly besieging us. And at the same time, we are sort of also confronting a situation where a lot of us have had our, our our options constrained, you know, and they're they're it's it's easy when you're sort of working from home, quote unquote, right, to kind of, you know, identify with that monk looking out the window and thinking, is it almost is it almost five or are we done or what? You know? I know, I and know. So I'm wondering, like, you know, what do we do? I mean, given that I think that there are aspects of this that seem very contemporary and very resonant with our current situation, what are what are some of the solutions? I mean, how does one start to sort of battle? this particular temptation to, uh, to abandon, as you say, the things that are, that are needing to be done, but are perhaps difficult or perhaps require perseverance or the long, the long view. Yeah. Evagrius would say, um, you need to persevere. That's key. And to persevere in, um, stability, to persevere Mm. in stability. So, you know, stay in your place, um, stay at your desk, <laughs> stay in the fight, stay mm. in your marriage, you know, right. uh, stay in your vocation. Don't mm. you know, jump around. Um, uh, don't like, don't pivot too soon. I, I know, you know, many people, uh, their jobs have gone away and they're struggling. Right. I know that. Um, and they're thinking, how, how can I pivot? And this is like the word of, <laughs> of the, of the hour. Um, mm. Don't pivot too soon um, or, or too quickly or just, just in any direction, but try to make a decision out of a stable center, okay? Mm. And I want to talk a little bit more um, maybe as we go along about, about what Evagris had to say about, a, about stability at the center or stability at the core because, because at, at the end of the day, he wasn't talking about a, a pandemic. He was talking about spiritual um, acedia. He was talking about like mm-hmm. spiritual sloth, but it does have manifestations that, that move out. Um, he also talks about, you know, in the durational purpose, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the durational, um, aspect that we mentioned before to live with purpose in the present moment, 
it does. It, I mean, he literally says as if you're going to die tomorrow, <laughs> wow. you know? Yeah. Um, um, so live with purpose in the present moment, be present, you know, to the people mm. that you're with. I mean, if you're at home, be present to your family. Don't be thinking so much about, you know, what's going to happen next month and, and next year. And what, what's the next thing that's going to get canceled. Um, yeah. a, another thing that he says that I think is very, um, very critical. He says to, um, cut off acedia immediately as you recognize it. That's why it's important to, um, to recognize what's happening, uh, to confront it, um, to, to think about it, uh, to be, to spend some time being introspective hmm. and, you know, maybe in, in a little bit of solitude if, if you can, however you can, um, and to see what's going on on the inside. And then when this feeling comes on me or these thoughts come upon me, um, what's, what's happening? What's causing them? What is their result? What's the before? What's the after? And so then you could recognize when it's coming upon you. And he says, you know, cut it off uh, as soon as it arises. Don't let it persist. See, this is the thing. Mm. He says it's, it's a given that it's going to come upon you. But then it's your okay. choice. Um, what you are going to do about it. You know, you can allow right. it to, to tempt you to sin or you can struggle against it. So, um, th- and this is what he says, the very beginning, basically of the, um, the introduction to his, his work, the practicos. Um, he says, um, uh, we, we, we will be afflicted by these thoughts, but he says it is up to us to decide if they are to linger within us or not and whether or not they are to stir up our passions. Hmm. So that's, that's our choice. So the first order of business is to recognize this within ourselves, right? To recognize what's actually going on, you know, that it's not a matter of, um, what of a sort of an innocent, uh, uh, inattentiveness or something, but that this really is a potential source of, and I guess this is why they ended up calling it a capital vice, right? Or one of the deadly sins that, and that, um, it, it, it provokes other sins within us, right? Or, or if allowed to linger, it can, it can create other problems for us that, that stem from it. Is that, is that right? Yes, exactly. I mean, and that's, that's the point of all of the, um, all of these, I guess, I guess the, the vices, um, and terminology is also important too. Like Evagrius calls these thoughts, he calls them logismoi. He doesn't call Mm. them sins, but thoughts because Mm -hmm. they're, um, you know, thoughts that, that beset us. And mm. just because you, you have these thoughts, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be led into sin, but they are going to come against you and you have to bear up under them. That's what he recommends. That's what he hopes um, that, that you will do, that you will undertake this, uh, you know, these spiritual and devotional practices, that you will persevere in them. And um, you know, he talks about how how uh, the practices kind of um, build on one another mm. to strengthen you so that you have some spiritual muscle to flex when these thoughts um, sort of come upon you. Yes, I like the idea of um, trying to cultivate some sense of stability, right? I feel like you know, our lives are often, as you say, very mobile, right? And, yes. and people change jobs, change relationships, change circumstances fairly readily. Um, and of course, you know, if, if that's necessary, then, then it's necessary. But if not, yeah, sometimes, you know, you wonder whether um, there isn't some value in saying, um, I'm, I'm going to be committed to this place or to this community or, or whatever it might be. I mean, I know, I know a particular academician whose career is so successful that um, she would be quite welcome, you know, to be um, 
should be courted, you know, and has been courted over the years uh, to pick up uh, a position at a, you know, a potentially more prestigious university. But she feels so strongly that she's called to her particular place and her particular parish and her community that she's made it known uh, throughout the sort of philosophic world that she's not interested. Right. I, I think that s- stability is, it's one of the foremost uh, characteristics of monasticism. Uh, it's, you know, it's a vow that you take. And mm. so for, for you know, in, in the monastic life, um, stability is almost like number one, like for Benedict, it was extremely important. And mm. he just reviled monks that, you know, would, would wander around and like, look, you know, looking, not just looking for um, a, a better monastery or a, a different set of brothers, a, a different community that's, that's better, you know, better for you. Cause the individual kind of drops out at that point. It's, it's about the community, but also somebody who wants to be, you know, back, in the world, back in their um, in, in their maybe pre-Christian life, in their mm. um, pre-monastic life, because what it shows is that you're not grateful for where you are now. You're not grateful, and you didn't give up maybe as willingly as you thought the mm. world <laughs> to right. pursue God. So, Evagris yeah. um, has um, a, a couple of quotes here about perseverance. Um, the spirit of Asidia drives the monk out of his cell. But the monk who possesses perseverance will ever cultivate stillness. That's this, mm. this tranquility, this stability that we're talking about. Um, he's got another one. Um, the force of the wind does not shake a well-rooted tree, and acidia does not bend the soul that is firmly established. It's almost like a mm. proverb, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, um, one more. Uh, a plant that is transplanted frequently probably is what he means Mm. will not bear fruit and a wandering monk will not produce the fruit of virtue. And I think this kind of speaks to, you know, how we think about, you know, maybe we can, we can move here. We, we have options, you know, think of ourselves. I I think there can come a point where we feel like we have too many options and then things get confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And we're actually made paradoxically unhappy by it, as it turns out. <laughs> we right. say we want all these options. The fact is that that it's um, paralyzing, right? And it's and it's yeah. often an occasion for complaint over what one has chosen, right? In view of the many other possibilities they could have actualized instead. So that perseverance dimension seems good to me too, because that seems to speak to the temporal dimension that you mentioned as well, which is to say, um, you know, it trains one to think in terms of. Um, the contribution of the day to a larger program, right? To something that's going to take perhaps years and years of, uh, of disciplined spiritual practice to attain the relevant good, right? As opposed to sort of sorrowing or despairing or, or losing hope over a good that seems um, compelling, but difficult. Exactly. And um, I, was, I was thinking also about how, I mean, we're, we're kind of on the on the cusp of the new academic year. And I was thinking about how, you know, the student experience might be um, just coming out of a very long summer <laughs> mm. and thinking about the school year. And, you know, we might not be the most excited right now and there's still some fear, et cetera. And just, you know, about how acedia might manifest among students. Maybe there are some students out there that might, that sure might that. find this um, uh, important uh, to identifying what's happening with them. So, in, um, in this particular translation, acedia is translated as despondency. It's another manifestation. The eye of the despondent one stares constantly at the window, and his mind presents visitors to him. 
the door creaks and he jumps up and he thinks he hears a voice and he peers through the window and he doesn't go away from the window until exhausted, he sits back down. If the despondent one is reading, then he yawns a great deal and soon he sinks into sleep and he rubs his eyes and stretches out his hands and while his eyes wander from the book, he stares at the wall and he turns away again and reads a little. And when he leafs through the book, he searches for the end of the exposition. Like, where's the end of this chapter? How many more pages? It it says, he counts the pages and determines the number of sheets. He finds fault with the writing and the design. And in the end, he snaps the book shut and he lays his head on it and falls into a not-too-deep sleep. And in the end, he's awakened by hunger. And when he gets up... He then attends to his own concerns. I mean, this is the interesting thing about, to me, about um, this kind of experience. You sit down to do a good work and you get tired of it because it's long. And so you're kind of looking for distractions. and, um, And finally, you just zone out completely. And when you wake up and, you know, you're kind of yourself again, you never go back to it. See, mm. any, any effort that you had put into it or you try to struggle through it is for nothing. It's completely wasted. And any spiritual um, impact is mm. gone. Right. Yeah, that seems like a potent danger indeed. And I can see what you mean by yeah, the sort of the idea that, that as a result of this particular failing, you know, that the, the whatever gains might have been realized are, are sort of, as it were, squandered, right? Right, right. That's that's the word um, mm. squandered for sure. So, um, so for students, you know, spiritual sloth, um, falling, kind of uh, falling out of church attendance mm. or chapel attendance, and and right now, maybe a lot of us are at that point because our churches have been yeah. closed for you know for some people for quite a long time, and maybe in other parts of our country for the foreseeable yeah. future, you know. Um, so spiritual sloth. Uh, is a very real um, situation for for many, um, but it's not even just not uh, not going. It's not wanting to go and not caring about not going and not caring about not caring. <laughs> you know, that that, that right. kind of thing. Um, so uh, for students, sometimes it's in um, like laziness, like wanting to get by with the bare minimum and using scripture to justify it. Or, you know, uh, because of the pandemic, the, the standards might be a little bit lower. So then that's good enough. Or even um, uh, co- complaining about study and, and hard work and just praying instead and very, very piously that God would just reveal it through his Holy Spirit. <laughs> I just thought that, that is so contemporary to mm. the student experience, experience, especially what I've seen at seminary. Yeah. I'm afraid that will <laughs> ring a bell with a lot of our listeners. I suspect that it's a, it's a common experience among people who do this kind of work. So it's right. good to be uh, alert to it. It's good to learn from the tradition of our uh, church fathers and mothers and their insights on these subjects. And I appreciate your bringing them to us today. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate being here. And um, let me just give one last quote from Evagrius uh, sure. that kind of, I think, sum, sums it up about uh, the solution that he would give, um, namely perseverance. He says, perseverance is the cure for acedia, along with the execution of all tasks with great attention and the fear of God. And here's his advice. Set a measure for yourself in every work and do not let up until you've completed it. 
pray with understanding and intensity and the spirit of Asidia will flee from you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.